Hello, and welcome to this episode of American Scientist podcast series. I'm Fenella Saunders, managing editor of the magazine. In this installment, we hear from Ana Barros, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Duke University, and one of Sigma Xi's distinguished lecturers. Dr. Barros discusses how engineering can prepare us for extreme weather events, but also how changing climate and population conditions can affect the ability of infrastructure to hold up over time. From the point of view of engineering, when we come up with the estimate of what would be uh, the magnitudes of the extreme event for a desired risk level, meaning that the project we are working on could fail, for example, once in 100 years on average, or could fail once in 20 years, or once in five years. After we come up with that estimate, then the second phase of the project starts with the technical solutions that will enable us to make sure that for all other events of lower risk, the system or the infrastructure, the civil work will function and will perform as designed. It could be that failure is not total, it will only be partial, but it's understood that above that threshold, failure is possible. Flood management and flood protection has been carried out in this country since the mid-18th century. As we have new settlements, extreme events of, of different magnitudes took place, and so the local populations naturally took the initiative to develop measures to avoid the same damage would happen uh, next time. The solution to deal with those floods was to build uh, levees and flood walls of different sizes and so on. Oftentimes, after an extreme event happened, this infrastructure that had been put in place after the last flood would fail. And so again, there would be this big effort to reconstruct what had been in place and maybe increase the size of the flood wall or the height of the flood wall, add another one, and so on. And so what's different about the beginning of the 20th century is that after the big uh, Miami River flood in 1913 uh, in Dayton and Hamilton in Ohio, that the whole approach to flood management and flood protection, how we think about it, completely changed. One of the big challenges in flood control is to estimate the right magnitude for the right or for the desired risk of failure. For example, for a specific type of infrastructure, we are comfortable with the risk of failure once every 20 years or so. So that means that on average, we could expect the system to fail once every 20 years. Now imagine that because of natural climate changes or man-made climate changes, there is a change in the frequency of the magnitude of the event that we associate with that 20-year return period. Instead of a flood of, say, value X happening once every 20 years on average, begins to happen once every 10 years on average. That would be a major change because the way we have designed our system, it has a, an implicit uh, timescale of 20 years, and now we have to rebuild or fix every 10 years. The once in 10 years or once in 20 year events are really small magnitude events. So these are the run-of-the-mill type of extreme events. 
the really big extreme events are the events that result from a coincidence of different types of, uh, of unique circumstances. For example, the simultaneous occurrence of a hurricane and an earthquake. That would be a super extreme event. In hydrology, we talk about super floods when we talk about events that are so unusual that they are several orders of magnitude larger than anything that has been recorded in the past at that very location. They typically are associated with the passage of a major storm system, but they are also associated with initial conditions and with where exactly does uh, the storm go through, where does the rain fall, what is the condition of the land surface where the rain fell. If we look at the Dayton flood of 1913, it was a lot of rain over a five-day period, but most importantly, it was a lot of rain over a five-day period over frozen ground or wet soil. What that means is that none of the rain or very little of it could infiltrate. Therefore, all the rain became runoff, and that became a flood. The Pecos River flood in Texas is a situation where Hurricane Alice in the mid-50s came through, and it rained three times the mean, the annual uh, rainfall amount, over a, a one-and-a-half or two-day period. So three years equivalent of rainfall fell in a day-and-a-half. In addition to that, this rainfall fell on 10% of the area of the watershed, the locations downstream of that 10% area where all the rain fell, basically were very heavily affected and there were major damages. And of course, when so much rain falls over such a short period of time, the rainfall intensity is very high. Even if the soil can infiltrate and it's not wet or it's not frozen, there is no way that so much water can go into the ground. It will also become a flood. So these are unique circumstances. Usually we don't see this. I'm very proud of being an engineer. We have been an extremely successful profession. So successful that we have been designing infrastructure and other types of civil works that we say, are according to the codes and the calculations, is designed for lifetimes of 30 years, maybe even 50. And however, we look around and we see everything is pretty much functioning 100 years later. Now, what is the, the other side of this uh, success? Is that there is in the public this idea that somehow after we build a highway or put a bridge in place, that is a permanent acquisition and that it will function for 100 years or at least for as long as we can keep track. It will function the same way as it functioned in the first day. And so there's no need for monitoring, for investment, for retrofitting and so on. Infrastructure is, is no different than, for example, a cell phone or a piece of clothing that we buy and that we love and so we use very frequently as we use our cell phones. And so they fail, they fall, they break, they need new batteries, all kinds of things go wrong and so we replace them or we have them fixed. We should look at infrastructure the same way. There's really no difference. The only difference, of course, is that it costs a lot more and it affects many, many people at any given time. But because of the success of the past, 
There has been a deterioration of budgets in investment in terms of maintenance of infrastructure. Uh, one of the important requirements of maintaining an infrastructure is to monitor it and to make sure that it is indeed performing according to function and is not losing qualities. Climate change, it's very difficult to make a clear one-to-one relationship between a specific extreme event and climate change. That's because we don't have enough data, and in order to do robust statistics, we often need very long records. If we trace them back to the physics, we can see how it is very likely that in a certain region of the world, given changes in air temperature, changes in humidity conditions, changes in wind conditions, this will inevitably lead to an increase, for example, in severe storms in other regions of the world because the climate is different, the geographic setting is different, the topography is different. It's very possible that the number of winter storms will increase. Global change is not just about increasing temperature. It's about many other aspects of the climate system. And when we talk about extreme events, we cover everything, really, from blizzards to heat waves to floods to droughts. And so every piece has a a dual side. The key is really this issue of frequency and magnitude. Will certain types of events become more frequent? And if they do, how do we address that? Will certain types of events become more intense? If they do, how do we adapt to that? What is our response? And that has to do both in terms of mitigation and in terms of prevention and and preparedness. Engineers have worried about climate for as long as I know it. If we go back and we look at Mesopotamia and we look at Rome, the people that were actually putting infrastructure in place were thinking about how long was this going to last. In this country, one of the most important examples is actually what happened in the Mississippi River. The engineers who were working in the design of of the levees and infrastructure and dams really uh, took a lot of care in terms of thinking of climate variability and change. So they actually looked for denial data records. They looked for the Ganges data records. So they went all over the world and they collected data from locations where we we knew that uh, long historical records had been maintained. They actually did analysis by hand and they were looking at these climate cycles. They were looking at climate cycles of 300 years and 150 years and so on. So what we see in our landscapes is we don't see significant changes at all in flood statistics. And that's because we have armored our urban landscapes with these constructed networks. It's kind of applying a threshold through our statistics. We do not see the high frequency variability because it's impossible to see it. Everything functions, everything works, as long as nothing breaks down, of course. It's interesting when we think about recent events, for example, Hurricane Sandy or uh, the Fukushima reactor after the earthquake and tsunami in Japan, about how they failed. I'd like to emphasize again this idea that everything we built is built for failure. It will fail. There's actually a very precise estimate of, of how that will happen. What happens, for example, with major cities is that for years, for 50 years, or maybe even longer, very little attention was given to infrastructure. The whole idea that 
everything that is built has a certain life, an estimated life. So, for example, the water supply system for New York is in very bad condition. And in fact, probably some city in Asia or even in Africa that has a more recently built stormwater system that is more resilient than ours. And that's because ours have been in place for 100, 150 years. And so they were designed for a time when the paved areas of these cities were much smaller, when the population was much lower, and also for a different climate regime. In addition, they are made of materials. Materials get old, they become tired. We call that fatigue. It's, it's like a, a long worn coat that is just waiting for the last moment to rip apart. The fact that we've seen uh, so much flooding and so on, it's really not a failure of the, of the engineering that was in place but really of this interaction between engineering and policy. So it's really important to keep the public informed, to have these conversations, to educate the public, and to keep a close relationship between maintenance of infrastructure and adaptation and policy. When, for example, a levy breaks in a major city, the consequence is not only that uh, the levy breaks, but it's the fact that the city that is a downstream of the flood wave does not have infrastructure that can deal with that uh, uh, sort of a flow because the stormwater system has been designed for a much lower flow level. So this is one example where by having placed a very carefully uh, critical infrastructure at a certain location with a much lower risk level, we would be safe. But the fact is when it fails around it, nothing can support or can deal with at that level of damage. The idea of monitoring and making sure that we truly understand how these nonlinear risks propagate, how when a part of the puzzle fails, how everything else reacts to that is really important. Cities are always growing and we're building new facilities, a new treatment water plant, a new um, highway, a new airport and so on. And we never go back and, and ask the question, after we have put this major change in place, how does this affect the overall, the composite risk uh, for this particular area? And that question is usually never asked. It's a very dangerous way of doing business. This podcast was recorded and edited by American Scientist Web Managing Editor Katie Lee Corder. American Scientist is published by Sigma Xi, the Scientific Research Society. The music is Spot by Ardent Octopus, courtesy of Mevios Music Alley. Funding for the talk came from the North Carolina Biotechnology Center and the RTP and NC State chapters of Sigma Xi. Thanks for listening.